so it's nice to have Terry Murray back in Tattle Creek again this issue. Um, Terry, uh, a while back, sent me, uh, or had, had told me about a book that she was working on about uh, her family's uh, civil rights activities uh, in, in the late 60s in Chicago, where she grew up. And she finished it recently, and I asked her if I could have a look at it um, to see if there was something that we might want to run from it. And she sent me the manuscript, and uh, I, I read the whole thing in practically one sitting. I honestly couldn't put it down, because uh, I thought it was really interesting. So we, we have an excerpt in the, in the current issue uh, from her memoir, and it's about the uh, integration of a local uh, elementary school in her neighborhood where she grew up. And I thought it would be good to talk to her uh, here today and just to talk about that story a bit. And to do that, uh, we have uh, B. Kwame, uh, who's going to talk to Terry up here. Uh, B. is a, a writer, a digital content producer, uh, an event producer. Uh, and uh, she won her elementary school's Lunch with Robert Munch contest, which is my, <laughs> my favorite part of her bio. So uh, please welcome Terry Murray. Mm -hmm. And B. Kwame. We good? Hi. Hi. We just met tonight. <laughs> and I have to say it was interesting when uh, Conan emailed me about, you know, the event and about the opportunity to moderate and and he said, you know, we, we're featuring this excerpt from this amazing story, this woman who lived through, uh, you know, desegregation of an elementary school in Chicago. And he was going through the whole thing. And then he said in brackets, and Terry's white. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So I was like, let me go back and read this sentence again and think about it from a different perspective. And I said, you know what? I think I want to talk to her. I think I want to read this and, and kind of get an understanding of what it was that you lived through. So oh, thank you. Yeah. So why don't we start by... Um, I guess for people who haven't read it yet or who haven't got a chance, but I hope you pick it up and get a chance to read it. Uh, it's taking us back to your childhood in Chicago, 1968, and the local elementary school, Mount Greenwood, right? Mm -hmm. Elementary school um, was receiving 11 new black students. So kind of not in a purposeful way, as you mentioned, to create desegregation, but through some other overcrowding issues at the school, these students were moved to the, that school, um, and they were the first black students to be yes. present at that school. Um, your family was very instrumental in supporting um, integration and functioning as activists and allies and advocates and all those types of things. Do you want to give a little bit of backstory to the, to the entire, um, just kind of set the scene, and then maybe just talk about how your family got to be that way, to be that voice, to really support um, what okay. was going on? Well, I can deal with the last part of that more easily than the first part, and <laughs> yeah. that is I don't know. Um, <laughs> but what happened was, in 1968, um, which is, um, uh, just to set the scene, it's Chicago, it's the northern U.S. Um, in 1954, there was a court decision, a Supreme Court decision, that separate schools were inherently unequal. And so segregated schools across the U.S. had been justified by saying if they're, if they're um, equal, if they provide equal opportunities, equal education, then they're equal. But the Supreme Court said um, separate is inherently unequal. And um, so there began a series of integrations of schools. The two of the most notable ones were Little Rock Central High School and Little Rock in 1957, which was met with um, 
violence, uh, uh, certainly demonstrations, but vi violence, serious violence. The second year, um, the governor of, of the state uh, closed all of the high schools in Little Rock so as not to have to continue the, the project. And um, the other was in 1960 in New Orleans. You may be familiar with the Norman Rockwell painting of Ruby Bridges walking and somebody's thrown a tomato and she's got federal marshals with her. Anyway, so 1968, Chicago, north, liberal, democratic city, you know, um, but actually one of the most segregated cities in the U.S. So there had been a busing program that had been started in the public schools and the Catholic schools were going to follow. And in the school in my neighborhood, which was on the southwest side of Chicago, hardcore white neighborhood. Um, people had run from what was known as changing neighborhoods, neighborhoods that blacks had started moving into, and white families were told, your property values are going to go down, and so people ran. And there was also a requirement, still is, in Chicago for civic workers, uh, especially cops, fire, uh, firefighters, um, to live within the city limits, so you couldn't live in the suburbs. Um, and there were a number of other compelling reasons to w live within the city limits. But anyway, um, so this was a very, very right-wing, racist, John Birch Society neighborhood. And in uh, the beginning of 1968, January of 68, uh, it was announced that 11 kids were coming to Mount Greenwood Elementary School. Um, most of them were in eighth grade. And uh, there were a few who were in second and third grade. And... The, the program that they came in under was called Permissive Transfer, and it was not for the purposes, set up for the purposes of integration, it was set up in order to relieve overcrowding. And people in the neighborhood thought that the school was overcrowded as it was, but of course what they really were pissed off about was the fact that there were these monstrous 11 black children who were gonna come into the neighborhood and were the thin edge of the wedge. So the kids came to the school. My, my parents became aware of this and got together with some liberal friends of theirs um, and decided to form a welcoming committee because this wasn't busing. The parents were responsible for transporting the kids to the school themselves. And the first day that the kids came to the school, I wish I could remember now, I think there were 450 demonstrators against them. And... Um, my parents showed up and somehow were able to, you know, hold the car door open for the parents and the kids. And um, the, de the demonstrations went on for several weeks. And, my, and a couple of the parents pulled their kids out of the school. A couple of the black families pulled their kids out of school, uh, which, I mean, who can blame them? Um, and I think there ultimately were nine... Sorry, memory fails. Somewhere between seven, eight, or nine, I can't remember. And um, they also, what, what this project did for them was it, it allowed, the, it put them in the catchment area for a high school that they all wanted to attend. And um, so they were bound and determined to stick it out because they were about ready to go into high school. And my dad was working out of town and he came back in uh, for the first day of, of the black kids being at Mount Greenwood. And then he went back to, I think he was working in Washington for IBM. And, um, and on the third day, 
there are some fairly dramatic photos that accompany the article. There were two guys um, who decided to join the crowd of picketers. And um, most of the picketers were middle-aged women, stay-at-home mothers. And so they saw these two guys and they said, good for you boys, nice to see some men here. And then they read their signs. And so they were counter-demonstrators. And the crowd set upon them. One guy was, uh, was kicked and punched, and another guy was, uh, had his sign torn out of his hand. And, and, and then there were people who were sort of strong-arming them into unmarked cars, and it was only after they got to the police station that they realized they were, they were uh, plainclothes police. And there was a photographer there from the Chicago Sun-Times who got all of this, like he was just shooting like crazy. So they successfully sued the city later. Um, because they were charged with resisting arrest and um, disorderly conduct. Anyway, the, so the kids lasted, the, the demonstrations continued for, for two solid weeks. Um, and then on a couple of days after that, and then April comes around and it's starting to get uh, the attention of national media, except it got sort of blown out of the news cycle because Martin Luther King was killed. So this has never been written about in any detail. So I still have my childhood diaries, and I wrote about it in my childhood diaries. Um, there was a police intelligence unit called the Red Squad, and the Red Squad, which was shut down after almost 100 years in the mid-'80s, had files on what was going on at the school. My parents had Red Squad files. I have a Red Squad file. And how old were you at that time? I was 16. Yes. And I didn't get my Red Squad file for any really good reason. I was on the mailing list of the Student Mobilization Committee to end the war in Vietnam, and they got the, the mailing list. And so I didn't get it for setting up speaking engagements for uh, people who'd burned sacks and sacks of draft files. I got it for being on a mailing list. But anyway, so... Um, so, so that happened, and the next year, the permissive transfer program ended. The neighborhood was saved from the terror of little black children. And in fact, the neighborhood is still as racist and right-wing as it was then. In the 2016 presidential election, the city of Chicago, being a democratic stronghold, went to Hillary Clinton, except my neighborhood, 70% Trump. There, Still. Yeah. yeah, and there was, a, there was a black man who was shot and killed by an off-duty policeman. The details are a little murky, but there, was, there, were, there, was, there were demonstrations the week before the election between Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter, and the vitriol from the Blue Lives Matter crowd was as bad as it had been in 1968. A lot of don't wreck our community, wrecked yours, a lot of N-words thrown around, and, um, you know, just... No change. So it still continues. And I actually want to touch on that for the next point. Uh, what's really interesting, having family who live in the U.S. and in different states, and because, you know, during Black History Month growing up, pretty much everything I got was American black history, not really Canadian black history. It always seemed like the South was like the seventh circle of hell when it comes to racism and bigotry and all of that. And it's interesting that you put a quote in there from Martin Luther King Jr., who said that, you know, he's been a civil rights activist for decades and, you know, he's seen a lot of things and has faced a lot of things, but it was a, a rally or a demonstration in Chicago, I think in 1966, where he was hit 
with a rock. Somebody threw a rock exactly. and there was mobs and demonstrations. And he said he's never seen a mob as hateful and as hostile as what he saw in Chicago. And I know from some of my own research on MLK, that was an awakening for him to realize that the North is not necessarily, you know, this utopia. No. So what do you think, just from your own experiences and, and doing your own research and what you've lived through, where do you think this narrative comes from? Because I think it's very similar when people compare the U.S. to Canada and think that Canada is a total utopia and not understanding what is happening here as well. Where do you think these narratives come from and what do you think we need to do to make sure we're getting a more well-rounded story of the different truths that we have? I think they need to be told. I mean, I, I, was, I was guilty of of naivete when I was working on this because the reason I wanted to write about this was apart from the fact that what my parents did and what, what my parents passed on to me um, I, I thought was worth noting because my father was emboldened by the, by the school experience to then start a, a computer programming course for inner city black adults who are underemployed. And uh, he did this on a, perf on a completely voluntary basis and wanted IBM to take it on as a corporate program across the country. And um, he was severely penalized at IBM for it. And I'm not sure if he was fired or quit uh, because he saw the writing on the wall. But um, um, so, you know, I was, I was a little 13, 14 year old. No, I wasn't that little. But I mean, I was a 13, 14 year old Catholic girl and, um, you know, very devout Catholic at the time. And, and, you know, in awe of Martin Luther King and all of the nonviolent um, activists and a little afraid of the Black Panthers and the Weathermen and all that sort of stuff. And, and I, I saw that there was some change. And I wondered when... In the last couple of years when I started writing this, I wondered about this resurgence of racism. And I thought, why is it so intractable? Why has it popped up again? And someone um, who was very kind uh, enough to educate me, actually one of the people who was one of the Little Rock students, Terrence Roberts, who I got to spend, uh, I didn't spend time with him, we talked on the phone, and he very gently said, it never went away. It's not a resurgence, it's a continuation. And, and I said, so, okay, okay, well, he was really gentle with me, I, that he was fabulous. And I said, so what do we do? And, he, and I sort of got the feeling from him and from other people I've talked to that you really, there, there are political things you can do, you can vote, you can demonstrate, but you also, there's a great quote from Eleanor Roosevelt when she said, where where do human rights begin when she was working at the UN and set up the, uh, the human rights charter, was instrumental in that. And she said, it begins at the personal level. And I really think that's what it, that's what it takes, um, in addition to all of the concerted political action. But I think it really begins at the, like at the dinner table, right there when you're talking to... Yeah, yeah exactly. and neighbors and classmates mm -hmm. and... Mm -hmm. and you know, um, yeah, yeah, like that. So let's talk about your dad for a little bit. Okay. Because what was really interesting as well, a kind of an interesting development in the story, a twist that I didn't see coming, was the fact that you mentioned, you know, as involved as you, both your parents had been, um, and you mentioned your father creating this program um, mm -hmm. for black youth and, and young adults. 
when he lost or whatever happened with IBM, whatever happened with that, that kind of cut off his livelihood at that point. And uh, I'm sure you guys, I think you mentioned in the story as well that you guys had issues, your home was firebombed and... We had a, yeah, we were, the house was bombed. Right, yeah. so things of that nature, which I want you to touch on. It was a little on. bomb, but it was a bomb. Well, it's, it's a bomb, it's still, a bomb. it's a bomb. Like, But what was interesting was the fact that you say that your father had a very distinct shift in perspective and he actually became very racist, very conservative, um, registered Republican, homophobic, the whole. So how, like, how do you think that happened? It's hard to know because you don't know how your parents, like you said, you don't know how your parents became or were these people who were so open to, to be advocates, but then now he totally shifted. The, so. thing, the thing that I found interesting about my parents was there was nothing in their background that was that would suggest activism at all. I mean, my dad wasn't a lawyer, my mother wasn't a social worker. It's not like they, they had any, any, you know, like, I, I'm a journalist. So, you know, you might think a journalist, a lawyer, a social worker, something like that, they, they might be activists, but there was nothing in their background. They had no black friends that I was aware of. In fact, the, the, the only black person we knew for the longest time, um, and I don't think my parents chose to move to this neighborhood deliberately because of what it was. I, don't, I think, you know, they just needed a bigger house. We'd actually grown up, I'd grown up until I was five in a Jewish neighborhood. We were the only non-Jews on the block, you know. And, um, and then uh, my second sister came along. We needed a bigger house. And so, um, I don't know, they wanted to stay within the city limits and on the south side, so we moved to Mount Greenwood and found out later how it was like the wrong place for us to be, but we stayed. Um, so I was, I was impressed that they had, they did this not because of any personal experience, but just because they thought it was the right thing to do. And, and I think, I mean, I, I was never able to discuss this with my dad who died more than 10 years ago. And my mother died 25 years ago. So, you know, by the time I got to the stage of thinking about this, it was too late to, talk to them, but um, my father was a narcissist, and I think he could have, he never could have been thanked enough for what he did. Um, and I think he was very jaded by what happened to him at IBM. He continued to worship the, the corporation and the founder of it, Thomas Watson Sr., and his son, who was the president at the time, Thomas Watson Jr., despite having been so badly treated by the company. And, um, and uh, you know, he may have, there may have been some underlying conservatism that I didn't really, I wasn't, I wasn't aware of because he seemed so progressive in big ways. And um, some of it, I think, was uh, my parents' um, There'd been, a, there'd been a problem in the marriage, and then this, when my dad got kind of booted from IBM, there was a, it, it, it widened the rift between my parents for reasons that I, I won't go into right now, but, um, but I think my father kind of, he actually was still fairly liberal at that point, but later um, he, he, he just became increasingly conservative, and he also, and his, uh, my parents ultimately divorced, and his second wife was a ferocious conservative. And I think she probably enabled his conservatism. They retired to Tucson, Arizona. They loved Indian culture, but they didn't like Indians. 
um, you know, and because they're lazy. And um, and his wife would say, um, when they'd be listening to the news, she'd say, you know, all the criminals, they all have Mexican names and black names. And I just kind of okay so you're you're enabling dad and there were there were other things they carried guns and my father um my father had been in korea not in a combat position and i remember him being in 1966 or 67 when the museum of science and industry in chicago um had a an exhibit with a a, a huey um helicopter and they basically turned it into a war game you could get in the helicopter and shoot at a Vietnamese village. And the exhibit was, sh was shut down after about a week because there were so many protests. And my father was really upset about that because he had seen what guns could do and what war guns could do. And then later on, he winds up carrying a gun himself, as does his wife. So I think it was narcissism. I think it was, like I said, some underlying conservatism and who knows? But yeah. it just goes to show the kind of the fragility of the whole thing, if it can really flip that much. Or like, as you said, and you're a child, so you're not, it's not the same as if you're interacting with him as an adult and yeah. you're able to see things and analyze things a different way. But it's just so interesting, like that human experience can just... Although, you know, mm -hmm. in um, maybe 2000, mm -hmm. um, we, were, we were talking about the... Um, uh, there was a big Chicago blizzard in 1967. I forget what the exact amount of snow was that was dropped in 30 hours, but it's, it's never been um, exceeded. And he's, he remembered that during the blizzard, um, there were roving gangs of black toughs who were pulling white drivers out of their cars on the expressway. And I said, Dad, the city was paralyzed. There were no cars moving, and there had been some looting, but there were not, this didn't happen. And I said, you know, you're, you're a racist. And so he sent me one of the brochures, one of the many brochures he had saved from the computer program, which he called Project Brilliant Black, and recruited students with Jesse Jackson's help. And he sent me one of those brochures with a post-it note on it that said, is this the work of a racist? So he still thought that he was fairly progressive, despite the fact that he had this false memory of of racial incidents in the middle of a paralyzing snowstorm. Wow. It's just, it's, it's baffling. It's so interesting to think about and, and to read from your perspective and even to hear you adding on these other things, these other elements to it now. But there's another thing you brought up as well that was really interesting to me in the piece. Um, near the end of the excerpt, uh, you have a clip or a, a little uh, blurb from Ebony Magazine, from an editorial in Ebony Magazine. I'm going to read a little bit of it here. Okay. Uh, so basically, it was an editorial in Ebony, um, which is a, it's still around now. It's a longstanding um, African-American magazine. National. US yes, magazine. exactly. Yeah. Um, and it, it was juxtaposing pictures of screaming demonstrators in 1960 in New Orleans with the 1968 demonstrators in Chicago. Uh, so it says, two sets of faces deformed by hate were virtually indistinguishable, as were their songs. And it says, the tune is the same and so are the words. Only the singers differ in time and place. They are usually mothers, housewives, and of early middle age or younger. They are always white. Often they carry preschool-aged children in their arms or push babies in carriages as they perform. 
N-word, 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 go back to the zoo, we don't want you, kill them. The voices are shrill and the faces contorted. And what was really interesting, it goes on, there's more um, from, the, from the Ebony editorial there, but it touches on the fact that, and it's something that I feel is often missing when we think about racism and the history of racism, um, it's very easy to think of it as, you know, you think of the white slave masters and you think of men who are doing things to enable these processes. You're thinking of racist cops who are generally men. But a lot of the times, like, and you mentioned earlier, the demonstrators that you remember seeing were women. They were young women as well. So it kind of flies in the face of this idea that it's a, a masculine thing because a lot of white women are very complicit in that. And it also flies in the face of, oh, this is a, you know, an old people, a generational thing. It's people from a different time because you have young people, you have mothers with their children um, engaging in this behavior and not feeling any shame about passing that down to their children. And I think that with all good intention, we always want to think that racism is something that's going to die out. But as you mentioned before, when you spoke to your colleague from Little Rock and he said there was never a resurgence, it's a continuation. This is how it continues. Was there anything illuminating to you when you were doing your research and you came across that, that ebony piece to think about kind of the positioning of white women and, and even thinking about kind of things that have come up recently? I know there's been a lot of talk about um, white women voting in droves for Trump um, in, the, in the election and different things of that nature. But was there anything that made you think Wow, I never thought about it from that perspective? No, but right now, wow, I've never thought about it from that perspective. (laughs) (laughs) I assumed they were mostly housewives Mm -hmm. and that the men, although there were some men, that they were Mm -hmm. at work. You know, Mm. I mean, this was 1968. A lot of my mother was a stay at home mother for a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts about that? Because I don't write yeah. off the top of my head, except bewilderment. Right, I mean, this, this could be another talk. We might have to schedule something another time. Uh, but it's something that I've had to have my own awakening of as well and, and really think about. But historically, there's been lots of stories of um, back in slavery where the mistresses of the house were actually more violent and vicious than the, than the masters because the master, the men would be out in the fields or they would be out procuring more slaves and the woman of the house would be the one who would be there determining punishments and all those types of things. Uh, so it goes back to that, um, that point and it goes through you know, continuing generations where there are lynchings and if you look at pictures of lynchings, there are a lot of women there cheering and a lot of women who are just as engaged and enraged as any of the men that you would assume would be feeling the same. And I think about um, in present day, I'm not sure how much people are familiar with just different things that have been happening, but there have been like rush um, examples of white women calling the police on black people for just just doing stuff. Yes, Just doing stuff. Um, A family in Oakland was barbecuing and they had the permit to barbecue. You can barbecue in the park. And this lady was just like, no, you're not supposed to be here. And she called the cops. And she's turned into a meme now. Like, she's photoshopped in the back of everything on her phone. Uh, Including and the march on Washington with Martin Luther exactly, King. Exactly. I saw that one, too. Yeah. I saw that one. And there was another uh, incident just a few days ago. They're calling her, her hashtag is Permit Patty. Uh, she called the cops on a young black girl who was selling water in front of her apartment complex to raise money to go to Disneyland. Um, And it's like, you're not supposed to be here. I know something happened at Yale where um, a white student saw another, a black female student sleeping in a study hall and she called the cops because she didn't think she's supposed to be there. And, And I think part of it too is 
what, what, what gets weaponized as well is um, like white women's fragility. And for white men, it becomes, we've got to protect our women. That's another thing that comes from it too. So it's interesting because uh, like white women have their own set of oppressions as well, but then their own set of abilities to be the oppressors. So I think it's really interesting. Like I said, this could be a whole other talk, another day. I might have to write something for Tattle Creek. We'll see. But, um, but it was just interesting that that was included in your piece as well. And, and I mean, you're a white woman yourself. So I was like, oh, I wonder if that, that was interesting at all. But if it is now, at least. I need to think about that. Yeah, yeah. there you go, there yeah. you go. Thank you. No, hey, anytime, anytime. <laughs> So I guess maybe my, my last thing, and I'll, I'll kind of leave it open if there's anything I didn't ask that you wanted to share, but I think it's really important as we move in, we're in the present, we're moving into the future. It seems like every day I go on Twitter, there's something different that's signifying like the end of days and it's just dismal. Um, you know, people are getting tired. People are trying to continue the energy to fight for what they believe is right and all these different types of things. And I think it's really important that we look at the people who have come before us, who have experienced things and lived through things that, um, that we're continuing to experience now and, and take that advice and take that knowledge. So what is some piece of advice or something you would give um, to maybe white people who want to be better allies or just anybody who wants to do more to be a better advocate, be a better support. You mentioned things as far as, you know, starting at home, starting in that personal level, um, in addition to all the other political things and, and the actions you can do. Uh, is there anything else to add to that? Or do you think that's pretty much where people can really start? I, I, think, I, think, that's, I think that's where it really has to start. I mean, I, I'm all for voting and I'm all for, um, uh, you know, protesting, I think, and writing letters to your MP. Um, but I think, and um, I won't get into details, but there's, there's one segment of society that, okay, I'll say it. One thing I have never understood is um, uh, people who are transgender. I don't have a problem with, you know, I don't have a problem with it, but I don't understand it. I'm glad I don't understand it because I think it must be very confusing and very difficult. And... A little cousin of mine, um, who's 10, 11, is transitioning now. And, and it's not that I felt any hostility toward people who were transitioning. I just didn't understand it. And I can't say I understand it any better, but I look at it very differently now because I think of my cousin. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm, I'm, my biggest regret about her deciding that she didn't want to be a girl anymore is she had the best name. Her name was Tallulah. <laughs> and she fully inhabited that name. And her name now is Zach, which I don't think has the same punch. But I mean, I think, I think about her and I think about her parents and I think, you know, it, it, it makes it different for me. Mm -hmm. it, um, it makes me want to understand more. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I really, I just, I, I mean, I think that's, that's where it begins. There's definitely power in that. And I think that a lot of the times when we think about what can we do, we get so overburdened with feeling like it's so overwhelming to make a difference. But those are things, they, they're difficult conversations to have. I had a really tough conversation last night. We got together with a, a good friend of my husband's who is very conservative in his ways. And, and we politely butt heads. And I'm trying to be very careful because... 
we have daughters the same age and I don't want him to say, okay, he doesn't want his kid to play with my kid. So I'm like, I'm trying to be very respectful about how I approach what you're saying, but we've got a real issue here. But my, we were driving home and I was saying, you know, we were talking and I didn't want to bring up anything that could be, you know, a controversy. I just want to have a nice chat, let the little babies crawl around, we'll watch Netflix, we'll enjoy dinner, that's it. And somebody brought up, actually, um, like talking about pride. I think his wife brought up pride and that turned into a thing and it turned into a huge thing. And so when we left, I said, I feel so frustrated because it, it, I was frustrated, but I was inspired because I said, you know what? People like him need more resources. I feel more empowered to do more so that I can give him more to say, this explains what I'm talking about or this explains this experience. But I said, I felt so frustrated leaving because I felt like he kind of didn't hear anything I said. And so my husband said, you know what? But at least you guys had the conversation. He might not think about it now. He might think about it tomorrow. He might think about it next week. He might think about it when he runs into somebody else who, and they have a similar conversation and he remembers what you said. So he said, there's, there's an importance there in having those conversations as difficult as they can be. And I think that's something that we can all take away where we can kind of make what might seem like a small impact, it might have a huge impact. Well, there was, there was one uh, incident where my, my youngest sister, who was maybe three or four at the time, was pl playing down the street with, you know, kids, and um, a very, you know, conservative racist household, and she came home for dinner that night and launched into this stream of racist invective, and my parents and my other sister and I sort of looked at her like, where did this come from? And she would not be dissuaded. Um, she was just completely infected by the mother of this friend down the street. And what happened was we went on vacation the next summer, and we were in Atlantic City. We were, you know, wading in the ocean. And these two black boys came up, and um, we were talking about all kinds of stuff, and Marge was talking to them, and she sort of, she sort of came around. It was that personal experience. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't always work, because back when I was a kid in Mount Greenwood, um, our mailman was the, the only Negro who anybody really knew, and he was generally regarded as a credit to his race. You know, he was the exception. Mm -hmm. He wasn't like the rest of them, mm -hmm. you know? So it's, it doesn't always work that way, but I think that's probably where it starts the best. And also, I came to Canada when I was 18, and um, I thought, I thought, you know, Canadians didn't have it all figured out, but it's, it's a better society than the US. And then when I was working on this and researching it, and I started doing a little more reading on carding, read Desmond mm -hmm. Cole's stuff, mm -hmm. paid attention to what was happening to Aboriginal communities, and I thought, we're still better than the US, but you know, we got our own problems that we need to fix. So it's, um, it's, it's, it's a universal problem, and I don't, I don't know what the, if it'll ever be. I think there's always going to be us and them. There's always going to be a dividing line mm -hmm. between people who see differences, but I live in hope. Mm -hmm. And I think your piece is exemplary of that. And I think your piece, when I mentioned resources, is actually a really great resource from your unique perspective, the fact that you lived through this, uh, what you were able to detail through your research. It was phenomenal. I can't wait to read the entire oh, book. So this is just an excerpt that's in the, uh, in the issue of Tattle Creek, but the full book, I can't wait to actually read the full thing and really get into it. But 
I really appreciate you for doing that work and to investigate your own life story and your family and bring that out because I think that's something that is really going to resonate with a lot of people beyond maybe who you even imagine it would resonate with. So thank, thank you so you. much for thank that. Thank you. Yes. And thank right. you guys. Thank you.